The year was 1675, and they were building the great cathedral of St. Paul in London. Sir Christopher Wren was the world-famous architect that was building it, and a, and a reporter for the London Times was going around and asking different workers um, what they thought of what they were doing. He went to the first man, and he was uh, obviously putting some of the stones into place, and he said, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm putting a stone into this slot right here. Isn't it obvious? He went to the next guy and a little bit down the row, and he said, so what do you feel like that you're doing here? And uh, he said, I'm earning a day's wage. He went to a third man down on the end of the row, and he just seemed really intent on what he was doing and said, same exact question. What are you doing? And he said, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build a great cathedral that's going to last until the end of time. So I guess it really kind of all depends on your perspective, you know. A lot of us have not completely understood what this Christian life is all about in our time. But did you know that what it is, it's not, it's not mostly about us. It's about this great incredible plan that God is putting into place. And it's our job. Did you know that there's an unfinished work of Christ? See, there's a finished work of Christ. What he did on the cross is finished. That's why he said to tell us die at the end of the, the time that he was being crucified. It means it is done. It is finished, paid in full. Our redemption, our salvation was totally completed on the cross. There's nothing that we can add to that ourselves. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But there's also an unfinished work of Christ. Jesus himself said that until this gospel is preached to every panta ethne was the Greek words. It means every people group, every group that has uh, their own identity as a tribe, as a people until it's preached to every people group, the end won't come. When it's done, when the church has finished that, the end will come. So there's this unfinished work that we're to be about, and we get to be a part of it with him. But it's kind of intimidating, isn't it, when you think about it? It, it, it feels like, wow, how are we supposed to finish the work of Christ? What Laura and I are calling you into today is nothing less than the greatest experiment of our time. It's to see a church that's functioning the way that God intended church to function. Back in the Old Testament, they were asking God, they said, God, what do you desire? What do you want from us as human beings? And someone said, well, maybe it's sacrifice. He said, what if I give these great sacrifices, 10,000 rams. No, that's not what I want. Well, what if I gave the ultimate sacrifice? What if I sacrificed my own children to you? Definitely not what I want. And the prophet Micah in Micah 6, 8 says, but he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
I think that's the operating system that he wants our church to operate on, justice, to do justice, to, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Listen to Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. It says this, all this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. This is who we are to be, his body, acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly in our day, in our age, so that our world can see it. You see, there's, there's a war raging. The book of Acts is, is a record of, of power, an account of life and health pouring into a sick, dying society through a group of uh, obscure men and women very much like us. We couldn't understand the New Testament if it wasn't for the book of Acts because the, the gospels end with Jesus rising from the dead. And at the very end of the gospels, we see some Jewish people up in an upper room, 120 of them waiting for the promise of God. And then comes the book of Acts. And then Romans is after that. And the book of Romans has an apostle that wasn't even there when walking with Jesus with his other apostles, but he was named an apostle later, writing to a church that's blown out across the globe of their time, across the world of their time. In fact, in the book of Romans, Paul finishes it saying, and I'm writing to all of you thousands of believers in Rome itself, even those who are in Nero's household. So even some of Nero's own family, some of Nero's own servants had come to Christ by this time. But the, the book of Acts tells us how and why this happened. And the first verses of chapter one constitute an introduction to the book of Acts, giving us the key to the book. And we have revealed the essential strategy by which Jesus Christ proposes to change the world. Acts 1.1, let me just read it to you. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen. So in Luke, Dr. Luke wrote this. He was a medical doctor. He traveled with Paul. He went through all of those things that Paul went through, the suffering and everything else, to get that new gospel, which simply means good news, out to the rest of the world. He's Paul's companion, and he wrote two books in the New Testament. He wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And he says, I'm writing this to a young man by the name of Theophilus. It's a good Bible name. If you want to name your child Theophilus, it means lover of God. I wouldn't suggest you do that because in English, it just is like 
that's the awfulest baby I've ever seen or something like that. You know, you don't want to do that. Uh, maybe it doesn't make as much sense in English, but he's saying, you're a lover of God. I'm writing to you. And, and I want to tell you that the, the last book I wrote, the book of Luke, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach, which implicates something. It means that the book of Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and teach through his church. And it's not about the apostles. It's not about any, it's still about Jesus and Jesus' body on this planet. Acts is not the acts of Christians, but the continuing acts of the Holy Spirit, the acts of Jesus through his Holy Spirit and through his body, the church. The book of Acts is an unfinished book. It ends with Paul in prison in his own rented house. He's got chained up with each arm to a different Roman guard, and he's waiting to be beheaded. But it just stops right in the middle of that story. It never finishes it. It's as if it's waiting for the next day to just continue, and it is. You see, the book of Acts is the first chapter of the great work that Jesus is doing. Now we're in the 21st chapter, which may well be the last chapter. In fact, I have a sneaking suspicion that it is the last chapter. What would he have us do as we begin to see this begin to wrap up, as we begin to see what God wants to do with us? We finish that work, that unfinished work. All through the New Testament, we have evidence that the people of God understood this. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 1.24. Part of my work is to suffer for you, and I'm glad, for I'm helping to finish up the, rem <clears throat> excuse me, the remainder of Christ's sufferings for his body, the church. And so that's what the whole book of Acts is going to be about, picking up and finishing the work of Christ. How do you and I finish this unfinished work? We do it together through his church, through his body in our time. Now, thousands of us this weekend will tell our friends and neighbors, I attend community of faith, and that's pretty awesome. But God showed me that he has brought us together in this time because he's calling this generation of believers, a new generation of members, to something so much deeper He's wanting us not to say, I attend community of faith, but by the end of these next four weeks, Laura's prayer, my prayer, many others that have been praying about this is that we won't be saying I attend community of faith, but we'll say I am community of faith. And there's a world of difference. It's a world of difference. You know, we'll step into what it really means to be a member of community of faith. If you're here all four weeks on that last week, you'll fill out a, our simple membership agreement and what's involved in that and what it looks like to really be all in. And I wanna encourage you to be here for these next four weeks. We'll start having a regular membership class because we're getting back to calling out you know, members, this new generation of members that said, I am community of faith. We'll have that on a regular basis, but if you attend these four weeks, uh, you won't have to come to that. You'll already know what we're going to be covering in there. And if you're at home listening, get up here for the 1130 service and start, okay? 
don't miss any of these if you can help it because I just believe that God's getting ready to do something amazing. I mean, what does it mean to be Christ church. And some of you are going like, well, I, I'm a member. I, I joined way long time ago, one of the first Sundays that Community of Faith ever existed, way back in the middle school when we were meeting there. I want us to, all of us together to kind of renew our vows. Laura and I are coming up this year on our 40th anniversary, uh, married together, and I uh, can't believe that. I was like eight and she was six when we got married. But, but here's the thing. We're talking about renewing our vows, even though our marriage is sweeter than it's ever been. But there's something sacred about that, something special. And I want you, even if you've joined in the past, we're gonna do this together. Uh, we're gonna renew our vows to the church and, and to the Lord. So are you up for it? Yeah? All right. Well, I've asked Laura just to share a, a, a brief history of our church for those of you who don't know this yet. So you can kind of get a feel for who we are. You know, when I talk about community of faith, I get excited. And so Mark said, can you share a brief history? So if I'm not brief, like y'all raise your hand and say, okay, cut it off here. <laughs> but I want to go all the way back and kind of give credit where credit is due. I've shared this with some of you before, but when I was a really little girl, my grandmother, who loved Jesus with all her heart, prayed that her grandchildren, that some of them would become preachers and missionaries and, and serve full-time in ministry. So really, it all starts with her. Um, she was praying this into existence. But then when I was a teenager, when I was 17 years old, God planted a dream in my heart, a dream to be a missionary, to leave the United States and go to a different place and share the love of Christ with the people who lived there, to be able to plant um, healthy churches that would be um, there, you know, from that point on and to be able to teach future generations in that country about the love of Christ. And then when I was 19, I met Mark. And when he proposed to me, it was with the words, you know, I might be a missionary someday. Is that okay with you? And it was because that was the dream God had given to me as well. And so almost 30 years ago, Mark and I and our three kids, we sold everything we owned, our house, our cars, um, everything in the house. Uh, we left our jobs, we left our families, and we moved to Mexico City. And we really thought that we would live and die in Mexico City, that we would live out our whole career, we would retire there. Mexico we actually City. thought we would die pretty early because just breathing the air in Mexico City was like smoking 13 cigarettes. That was, that was a risk, and, and honestly, it was a thought that we had. I remember reading, um, I loved to read missionary biographies, and one of them said in there, you know, if I could live 10 years full out for Christ, um, that would be enough for me. And so we kind of had be a worthwhile trade for an ordinary lifetime. For an ordinary life. And so that was our thinking in going. And Mexico City was it. We planned to be there. But God had other plans. And at first I didn't really understand why, because I felt like we have given everything, we have followed the direction that you've given to us, and I don't understand why now you're having us go back to the United States. And it took me a while. But I finally realized that it's because God loves you. God knew that you would be here. He knew that your family would be here. And he wanted to establish that church that I was dreaming of in a little field in Hockley, Texas with cows all around. 
And that's why we're here right now. God was dreaming, and his dream included you. So 21 years ago, we came back to Houston from Mexico, where we'd been living and serving mostly in Mexico City. In the last few months, we were in the Yucatan Peninsula. If you've been here for long, you know we started Comunidad de Fe Cancun there, and they're still part of Community of Faith. We'd been there for about almost a decade. Yeah, so we came back, and Mark and I really didn't know what we were going to do, but we had this dream of starting kind of a small mission sending agency um, and hoping to be some small part of God's plan within our community here, um, wherever God would have us. Um, But God kind of had a different dream, a much bigger dream than we had. His dream was to found a great church that embodied mission, a great church that reached many people, thousands of people here in Houston, and went on to reach those that are far from him all around the world. You know, God kind of said, give me your small dream, and I like that you're dreaming, but here's what I really want to do, and I want you to step in and be a part of it with me. I remember one of those first months that we were back in the U.S., and we were just kind of praying and and thinking, what do do we do? Why are we here? And we were at Willowbrook Mall, um, and we saw a friend of ours that we'd known years and years before, and we talked to them, you know, the normal, how are you, how are the kids, what's going on? And as we walked away, I remember he said to us, call me when you start your church. And we both kind of just laughed it off, like, you know, you're crazy, we're not starting a church, that's silly, you know, and, and went on. But God began to change our hearts. So Mark and I and our three kids sat in our living room, and we began to pray. God, what do you want us to do, and where, and how, and with who? And we began to look around the country for places, using those kind of mission principles that we had learned on the mission field, finding those places that didn't have a strong, dynamic church, that didn't have a witness there for Christ. Where can we go and be that witness? And as we were looking around the country, we also started looking around our area here, And we noticed something interesting that we never expected. There were two holes in our city that didn't have a living, vibrant, Christ-preaching church. One of them was Atascacita on the east side of town, and the other at that time was Cypress, Texas. And we thought, could this be what God wants us to do? Is this why he brought us here? And so we began to pray, and we began to drive around and look at the area. We didn't live in Cypress at the time, and Um, just, you know, what was here. There wasn't anything here, actually. Um, From Spring Cypress out, there was nothing but cows and grass, um, and Fairfield was always here. Barfield. (laughs) And uh, so we just began to pray, and I remember we, if many of you know Terry Leatherman, she may have been the first one that welcomed you into Community of Faith at some point, but We had met the uh, Terry and her family um, a few years before when we were back in Houston for a little while and our kids became friends briefly. And she told me when we were back, I prayed that you would come back and start a church. So it's your fault. So it's Terry's fault um, that we're not still in Mexico. And my grandmother, you know, it goes to those two women, strong women, ladies. So, you know, I want to encourage you to pray. God answers those prayers. But as we drove around praying about starting a church and looking for places and what could we do, we drove past Goodson Middle School, and it was brand new, hadn't opened yet. 
And I just had such a strong feeling of God saying, this is it. This is the place that I want you to be. When God tells Laura something, I always listen, you know, because it's always right. <laughs> Sorry. With, me, with me, it might have just been bad pizza I ate the night before, and I thought it was God, but with her, it's always right. I remember we went home that day, and Mark called the Cypher School District. They had a policy at the time of letting churches meet in their buildings for three years, um, and so we called, and we asked if we could rent Goodson Middle School. And the lady told us on the phone, oh, I'm so sorry. There's another church that's reserved that school. Um, but we have this, this, and this. And she listed a bunch of other places. And we got off the phone that day. And I remember being so discouraged, thinking, I just knew that's what God had for us. I, you know, I guess I misunderstood and, and we'll continue to pray. But I remember going to bed that night really disappointed, honestly, and discouraged. And we woke up the next morning, and it was about 10 o'clock in the morning, and the phone rang. And it was this same woman from the Cypher School District. And she said, you know, I called that other church to see if they're still going to move into Goodson, and they're not going to take it. So if you guys want it, we can rent it to you. And we said, it's ours. We signed on the line to rent it without ever walking in the building or seeing it, because we just knew so completely that that's what God had given to us. And that was just the first of literally hundreds and thousands of miracles that we have seen God do over the course of these almost 20 years. We had our first Sunday on Easter Sunday, April the 20th, 2003. We'd mailed out about 30,000 brochures to the neighborhood um, and 187 people showed up that first Sunday. And we didn't say anything like, hey, it's our first Sunday. We just acted like we've been going all along. Welcome to Community of Faith. I really didn't know what to do. So, you know, and I especially remember at the offering time because I said, if you're not a regular attender or a member of Community of Faith, don't feel obligated to give. And they didn't. <laughs> and they didn't. They didn't feel <laughs> obligated to give. I remember going home that, that Sunday afternoon and thinking, that's amazing what God has done. And then Mark and I looked at each other like, we got to do this again next weekend. Yeah, we planned for months for that one <laughs> service, you know. But 187 people showed up, and 120 of those stuck. Maybe some of you were there that very first Sunday. But it's been such a privilege since then to see the hand of God at work over and over, see miracle after miracle after miracle, and to know that really this is just the tip of the iceberg. In those very early years, sometimes we saw attendance literally double from one weekend to the next. And it was just crazy. We had this little band of people that had come along and joined us. And it felt like God was just doing this incredible thing. And we were really kind of just along for the ride, hanging on, um, because it was so exciting and things were moving so fast. And we didn't do it the way that everybody said you have to do it. You know, you're supposed to start with a core and, and meet with the core for a year or so and, you know, and all that. We just, we didn't know any better. So we just sent out that big brochure. And, and then all the people that came in were our core but very few of them were believers yet, you know. Because the school district only gave us three years, um, and we'd have to be out. And we started looking around in 2005, you know, where are we going to go? By this point, we had up over, I want to say, 1,200 people coming yeah. on the weekend. And, and there really wasn't anything out here in Cyprus. There wasn't a place to go. Um, we had outgrown every kind of storefront or anything that we might move into. And then in 2005, God did another miracle. He put in the heart of one of our families to give Community of Faith 42 acres of land 
on the corner of 290 and Becker Road, this land where we are today. And you know, everything that's happened since then is because of them. We wouldn't be here, you wouldn't be here if it weren't for them. And at the time, there was nothing here. It was a field, literally had cows in it. Like I said, there was nothing from spring cypress out. And we thought, do we accept that land? What do we do? And so we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And then we thought that'd be stupid not to accept that land. (laughs) So we did, knowing that God knew what he was doing and he was putting us in this place. I had one preacher friend that told me, he said, when y'all started building way out there, there was nothing out there but cows. I said, to myself, this guy's either an idiot or a genius. I don't know which yet. And I said, well, what do you think now? And he goes, I'm still not sure. (laughs) So as we prayed and we knew we now had land, we knew we were going to have to build. And in 2006, 800 of us banded together at huge sacrifice and raised $6 million to build our first building. We invested in God's kingdom And because of those people, everything that's happened since is in gratitude to them. They came together and made this happen. One couple actually funded the construction of the baptismal pool because they wanted to see and were praying for their children and grandchildren to be baptized here at Community of Faith. I remember when we first began construction, they were just moving dirt around and the the multi-purpose room was our original worship room. Um, But they were just moving dirt out here on the site, and Mark and I would drive by every weekend and say, you know, I mean, not every weekend, but nearly every day, and just see what was happening and what was going on. And I remember being here one day, the trucks were out here moving dirt around, and this car came driving up, and out came this elderly woman. And she walked over to us, and she said, excuse me, can you tell me what's being constructed here? And we told her that we were building a church, that it was going to be a community of faith. And she started to cry. And she said, I've lived out here my whole life. And I've been praying for 20 years that God would put a church on this corner at 290 and Becker Road. Again, God was answering prayers of a strong, faithful woman, ladies. God was answering prayers. I don't know where the guys are in this story yet, but. They were driving the tractors, moving the dirt. <laughs> And then in several years later, in 2014, we had our first service in the multi-purpose room in 2007 in February, about this time, um, all those years ago, we moved into that room and it was so exciting. You could actually see the names of those 800 people um, out in the front courtyard, there's courtyard, there's some stone with their names on it and see the names of those who sacrificed and gave to make that happen. But by 2014, we were having three Sunday morning services, and they were all overflowing. We were having the doors open and chairs out in the lobby to have enough space for people to come. And we realized, you know, we've got to do something because there wasn't room anymore for your friends and your guests and those people that were far from God to come in. And the interesting thing is when you get about 80% full, someone who doesn't know God, who's a guest walking in for the first time, they feel uncomfortable and they won't stay. They won't stick. So we knew we couldn't stay in that room the way that we were. So the faithful people at that time sacrificed and built this room. Again, it was a huge monetary sacrifice 
for all of these people. And at the end of 2015, we moved into this space for the very first time. And if you've come since then, and your family and your children have been impacted and changed, it's because of them. They sacrificed and they gave and they made this happen. In the 20 years since the church was born, more than 12,000 people have been baptized at Community of Faith. That's an incredible number. You may not know it, but the average church in America baptizes less than seven people a year. The first baptisms were actually in Terry Leatherman's backyard pool. And then we moved to a kiddie pool, like one of those little blow-up pools at Goodson. And then we had It was cold in the winter, I can tell you that. (laughs) But people remembered their baptism. (laughs) Yeah, because there's about six inches of water. I had to stomp on them to get them underwater almost. (laughs) But none of this would have been possible without the sacrifice and faith of that first family who gave us the land, without the sacrifice and faith of those 800 people who built our first buildings, and without the sacrifice and faith of the rest of you who made this building come a reality God has done so many miracles and so many things. And even while all of that was going on, we were still doing things all around the world. We built our first orphanage in Costa Rica before we ever built our first building. God had put it in our heart to be that church. We started work all across Mexico, in Cancun, in Merida, in Leon. We have the work in Burundi that you've heard about over and over that now includes a hospital, an elementary school, multiple trade schools, a bank with multiple sites. Um, I can't even list it all. The porridge factory feeding thousands and thousands of children every day. You have in Nicaragua a home for elderly homeless people where they can live out the rest of their days and know that they are loved and cared for. They lost their whole family in the war, most of them. Exactly. You have a center for children in one of the very poor neighborhoods to give them the advantages they need to get ahead in life from English classes and computer literacy classes, feeding them hot meals. I mean, there's just so much. You've worked in Honduras in the uh, helping girls that have been abused and trafficked. You've worked in Haiti helping the poor there. Um, There's a school there now that continues in churches called Community of Faith. You do work in the India in the Philippines, in England, in Poland, we're stepping in with refugees there. And right here in Houston, multiple partners, hundreds of people impacted, thousands of people impacted. That's what's happened because of the faithfulness of those first people and the faithfulness of you to continue the work. I want you to picture with me this morning the very first time you ever entered community of faith. Maybe you were alone. Maybe a friend invited you. Maybe you were desperate. But it probably never entered your mind, I wonder who built this building. I mean, I wonder who decided what it was going to look like and where it was going to be located. I mean, you just drove in. You parked. You walked in the front patio. You saw the flowers blooming there. The, The lawn was mowed. The coffee was hot. You grabbed a donut. You just showed up. And you never realized that this used to be only a grassy field, that people actually purchased the chair that you're sitting in. I think people gave $50 a chair to buy those seats. You didn't know it was a field where President George Bush shot an endangered bird all those years ago. And if you don't know that story, you can look it up. It was right here. All the life change that's happened in 20 years is nothing short of a miracle. 
It's not my miracle or Mark's miracle. It's not even your miracle. It's God's miracle. It was God's dream. And what a privilege it is just to be a part of it for us and for you. A few years ago, I had the honor of performing a funeral for a young man named Ryan. He was an amazing young man. He was kind to everyone he knew. He loved his mom and dad and his family. He'd been shopping for an engagement ring for his girlfriend, Christy. And he was working on a roof, and just a tiny misstep, he landed on a, um, a sun roof that didn't hold. And then it was over, and he was gone. And I was reminded of the fragility of our lives, that nothing is promised it's almost like a mist in the morning that's gone before you really kind of get out of bed, right? But Ryan loved Community of Faith, and, and they requested specifically that I do his funeral, and I'll never forget that day because his dad came up to me, and he gave me the biggest hug, and he said, I owe you a lifetime of gratitude. And I wasn't sure exactly what he was referring to, but he began to tell me, that Ryan had grown up in the church and loved the Lord. And when he went off to college, that he um, just got away from home and got away from family and caught up in those situations that a lot of kids do, that they're hearing all the anti-Christian rhetoric. And he kind of walked away from his faith. But two years prior to his funeral, he'd come back home and he'd discovered community of faith. And he came back to God and he was full out. He was all in. He told everyone he knew about community of faith. He invited them all to be a community of faith. And he said, this church has impacted Ryan's life. And Ryan has gone out and impacted everybody he knows. And there were hundreds of people at his funeral that would share that story with you. Community of faith changed his life. And he was just sitting there, right there where you are. And that was his story. And you know, there's a story in every other seat in the room today, your story and my story. And all of our stories together mesh together and become community of faith. And I want to tell you now it's your turn. You get to be the next generation, like Mark said, to share what was done with you, what God has called you to do. You know, when we first started community of faith, 65% of the people in this area would have said they had no church affiliation. And you would think 20 years later that that statistic has changed, but it really hasn't changed much. A lot of people have moved in, right? And it's still about 63, 65% that say, I don't have any church affiliation at all. I don't go to church. I don't believe in God. But do you know, I think long after we're dead in God, and people walk into this building never thinking about your sacrifice, their lives are going to be transformed. And their children will know God. Their families will be changed. Their marriages will be saved because of a decision that we've made to be community of faith, to be a part and a member of community of faith. And I truly believe that's the most significant thing you can do. Aside from raising your own kids and your grandkids to know and love God and walk with him, is to help community of faith to be a part of a community that makes that impact in the world. It will outlive you. It will outlast you. It will outimpact you. And we're calling you today to be a part of that. The very first thing that we would ask you to do to be a member of Community of Faith is to make the great confession. There's a great confession in the scriptures that 
what it means to be a believer. Jesus had asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they had given all kinds of answers. There are all kinds of answers still today. You know, you're a prophet or you're a madman, you're a lunatic or just a good person. You're, you're, you're just a regular guy or you're a liar. You know, different people think different things, but listen to what Simon Peter said in Matthew chapter 16. He said, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus came back. God bless you, Simon, son of Jonah. You didn't get that answer out of books or from teachers. My father in heaven, God himself, let you in on this secret of who I really am. And now I'm going to tell you who you are, really are. You are Peter, a rock. And the word rock there is like a pebble in the original language. But then he says, and on this rock, bedrock, a different word, I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. Wow, that's what the church is to be. What's that bedrock? The fact that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. A confession it is just an idea. Any idea by itself doesn't have a lot of power, but for instance, you take the law of gravity it, it, it's an idea, it's a principle, it's true. But until Sir Isaac Newton, when he met the law of gravity, then everything began to change. You take the principle of electricity and it's just out there, but until a man, Benjamin Franklin, comes in contact with that principle, when that happens, the lights go on all over the world. You take the law of relativity and it's really hard to understand, but you take a, a person like Albert Einstein, and when they meet that principle, then the atomic age is born. And we see over and over these kind of things. The church is an idea, but it's not our idea. It's God's idea. In fact, all of creation has been coming to this point. Ephesians 2.20 says, you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. Those early fishermen, and those women that gathered around him, those were the, the, the foundation blocks. And now we are living stones, the Bible says, built in to that. You know, I think that it's really important that we make this confession and it's not just words that we say. How do you do it? Well, first off, you have to realize your need that a lot of us, you know, in America, we're like saying, if my good outweighs my bad, I think I'll make it to heaven. I've been good to my fellow man. I've tried to do the right things. None of that gets you to heaven. In fact, the Bible says those just look like filthy rags to God. It's what Jesus did on the cross that makes all of the difference. It, imagine with me if we were standing at the lip of the Grand Canyon. How many have been to the Grand Canyon? Raise your hand up. Yeah, it's, this, it's amazing. A mile deep, so far across. And just imagine that all of us are going to try to jump the Grand Canyon. Some of us would do better than others. I would probably only get with my bad knee now about two feet out, and then I'm going to go a mile straight down, right? Some of you said, I can do a lot better than that, and you out-jump me triple. 
guess what you're going to do? You're going to go a mile straight down. And then you get someone like a Carl Lewis or something that's a world-class long jumper. And he gets, he goes, I've got this. And he goes out 30, 40, 50 feet straight down, right? Imagine if we're on this side and God's on the other side of the Grand Canyon. That's our efforts to get to him. What Jesus did on the cross, just imagine that this giant cross comes down and spans the whole Grand Canyon and it makes a pathway across the Grand Canyon so that God and us, we can, we can meet each other. I remember talking to a young lady in Mexico City, an upper-class lady. We were out at this really nice steak restaurant, and she said, I believe Jesus was the Son of God, but I believe there are many ways to God, which is a real common answer these days. And, and I said, wow, you must really feel like that God is really sadistic then. And she goes, what? And I said, well, you've watched the passion of the Christ. You've seen all that Jesus went through, going to the cross, being on the cross, all of that. And then God allows his son to do all, all this happens to him. And then he goes, well, that was a good way. That would have to be really sadistic. I said, what the Bible teaches us is it's the only way. And that's why Jesus had to go through all of that. He's the only way. And you step into this relationship with him and you say, I could never be good enough to meet you, God. I want to make the great confession. I want you to be the Christ, the son of the living God for me in my life. And this alive Jesus, risen from the dead, he comes to indwell us through his Holy Spirit. And we as his church together become his body. One of the things we do that we celebrate that is we do communion together. And I think it's so important that we understand why we do communion. Jesus said it's to remember all of this that he's done. Some years ago, I read a a story about one of the terrible earthquakes in modern history. It was in the old Soviet Union, and 55,000 people died in that earthquake. It was a terrible, really just expansive earthquake. But there were a lot of stories that came out of that. And one of them that I heard was about this woman and her daughter who found themselves trapped in the basement of their apartment with tons of rubble over them. And somehow this big rock that was like right above their face, just like this, had stopped everything else. And they were still alive, but they were buried deeply. And the little girl, after some hours had passed, she began to cry. And then she kept saying, Mommy, I'm so thirsty. Well, a day or two had passed, and the mom realized this little daughter of hers, her name was Gaiene. Gaiene was going to die, but she was not quite four. She said, but then I realized, wait, I've got, I have my own blood. And she found a shard of glass, and she began to cut her fingers and hold her hands out to Gaiani, and she would suck hungrily on, those, on, on the blood coming from her finger. And she kept thinking, I'm going to die, but I'm going to let my little girl live. She's going to live. She's going to live. I'll give my blood for her to live. Miraculously, both of them were saved. And so she was able to tell that story. Jesus said, this blood that I shed, it's a new covenant. 
It's a new covenant in my blood. And we're so thirsty. Like little lost kids in the basement, wide-eyed. We're in the basement of our own failures. Marriages that didn't make it. Lives that we wanted to live that we haven't done. So many things that we have so many regrets for. We're so very thirsty. And Jesus says this, I give you myself. What I've done on the cross, if you will step into that, rivers of living water will begin to flow through you. I want you just to close your eyes with me for a minute as we close out. And we're going to close out with communion. Rivers of living water. If you've never come to that place, and this is a huge moment for you, Maybe you've never heard it like that before, that you've just been trying as hard as you could to do the right things. That's not the answer. What I want you to do right now is you just stop, take a deep breath. I can't do this. Jesus, what you did on the cross was everything. I don't understand it, but somehow through the shedding of your blood, you opened the door for God to be with me. I ask you to be the Lord of my life. I ask you to be in charge in my life. I ask you to be in control of me. And you step into the great confession and everything begins to move in a whole different way. Do that right now. Do that right now. And all of us, those who have done it in the past and those of us who are doing it in this moment, we're going to celebrate that by taking communion. All over this room, there are little tables with candles on them. The bread and cup are there. We just have one little thing together. You take that back to your seat. You can peel off the little top and the bread is there. You take that, remembering his body broken for us. And you peel off the next part and you have the cup and you take the cup, remembering his blood shed for us. So look around, find the closest one to you. We invite all of you to partake in this part of the family already, even if it's your first week at Community of Faith. We celebrate the great confession together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for letting us be a part of finishing your work. God, I just ask over these next several weeks as we step into this with all that we are, that you will do what only you can do and that we will see that miracle. We'll get a front row seat to the miracle of what you want to do as you close out this age and you begin to rule and reign forever. We come to you telling you that you are our Lord. For every single one of us who made that great confession in this moment, this morning, I ask for them that you would guide them this week, that you would begin to show them, that you would begin to work in their hearts and in their lives. Just ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We love you. Be here next three weeks. You'll be part of the next-gen membership of community.